Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Magic and the Moon podcast. As always, I'm your host, David. And this week, I thought it would be fun to do a Q&A style episode. For one thing, um, I just enjoy doing them periodically, and it's been a while, so that would be fun. Um, but also, because I took such a long break uh, from the podcast from January to June that enough questions have uh, accumulated that I really have a lot of material to work with. So I'm excited to do that. Really quickly, before we get into it, I just want to remind everyone that the opinions and views on this podcast are my own views only. I'm not speaking on behalf of any group or institution or religious body, and everything I say here uh, is me speaking for myself only. Um, and also within spirituality, there are so many things that are subjective and varied and different. So if you do something differently or were taught something differently than what I'm saying, that's totally fine. Um, with that being said, let's get into it. Okay, first question. The entity called Leviathan, are they good or bad? Um, okay, this is, this, <laughs> this is the tricky one right from the get-go. So, um, for those of you that are not familiar, Leviathan, um, originates, I believe, in the Hebrew scriptures, um, don't quote me on the exact reference because it's been a while, but I want to say it's in the book of Psalms. Um, I think it's also referenced in the book of Job and Isaiah and Amos. Um, and then if we're looking into the, like, the Apocrypha and the kind of extra biblical sources, the book of Enoch uh, talks about Leviathan as well. It's kind of said to be an embodiment of chaos. Um, some Christian theologians say that it corresponds to like the deadly sin of envy. But um, the biggest reference we have in the scriptures comes from the book of Job, um, where God and Job are having this dialogue. And basically, God is telling Job how small he is in the grand scheme of things, because God created things much more intense and larger and beyond what Job could comprehend. And he uses Leviathan as an example of that. Um, historically, we know that the Leviathan that's referenced in the book of Job is a reflection of the older Lotan from Canaanite mythology who was a monster that was defeated by the god Baal Haddad. Um, and we also have enough links that we think that Leviathan could have its origins in the Babylonian goddess Tiamat, who kind of represented the, the primordial ocean of chaos before creation. Um, so on one hand, it matters a lot which Leviathan we're talking about. Um, is she... A biblical you know demon within like a monotheistic worldview for you is she the goddess tiamat is she uh not an actual entity but is she symbolic um of a concept of chaos or creation so those are things that you'd have to answer for yourself um before we can talk about whether leviathan is good or bad but also when it comes to spirituality in general um I'm of the perspective that good and bad are human labels because those are inventions of human morality. And we tend to label things as being either good or bad based on how we perceive things or how we perceive the effects that they have on us. But most things are not good or bad. Um, they just are. And they are capable of producing effects that we would probably consider either or both. So, um, that's not really a question that I can answer for you, but I hope that I've given you some some ways you can think about it. Um, Satanism also has uh, references to Leviathan as well. Um, 
according to Anton LaVey's Satanic Bible, Leviathan represents the element of water and was one of the four princes of hell. So that's something to consider. Um, within some Gnostic traditions, they uh, teach that Leviathan is like the Ouroboros that separates the divine realm from the human realm. So there's that. Just think about that. There's lots of different perspectives, uh, lots of different ways that Leviathan can be and is conceptualized. So you'll have to think about those things yourself and kind of decide how you feel about it. Okay, next question. Sorry about that. Just a little reading for a second. Okay, next question says, what are your thoughts on the law of attraction? Um, I do not... I do not personally subscribe to the law of attraction. I think it's a very like new age Christian thought kind of um, idea that I don't really find any credence in. Um, I definitely think that there's something to be said for like incorporating elements of things that are similar to what you want to bring into your life, right? But to me, that comes down to two important ideas in magic practice in general. And that's uh, the doctrine of signatures which is like, if I have something to represent something, then I can bring it to me, right? So like, that's why if you're doing spell work on a person, you want to write down their name or their birthday or have a photo of them or have an item that belongs to them or have nail clippings or hair or something like that, because it's signature in an energetic sense. Um, and then the items that you have that represent the person can affect the person themselves, right? Um, so I don't consider that to be the same as the law of attraction. But um, there's that. And then there's also the doctrine of contagion, which is kind of saying, if I touch this to something, then it will bring the effect I want. So that's where we have ideas of like dressing a candle, right? You're putting the oil that you want on the candle because it has a certain effect that you're imbuing the candle with. Or you put oil on a person. Or uh, when we wear enchanted jewelry, like um, saint medals or miraculous medals, or uh, in some of the African diaspora religions, we wear beads called elekes. Um, and the idea is that we are imbuing ourselves with the energy of the spirits or whatever it is because we're touching the objects to ourselves. So um, those are things that certainly influence my practice of magic, but I, I don't think those things are the same as the law of attraction, and I don't really put much stock in the law of attraction as an idea that's valid, personally. Okay, next question says, do you believe in the afterlife, and what do you think about angels, demons, and non-human spirits? Do they exist? Um, I do believe in the afterlife. Um, I've had a lot of experiences with spirits of people that have passed away. Um, I see it a lot in just like my personal life with my own loved ones and in my personal spiritual practice. And in my work as a medium, uh, I have worked with spirits of other people's loved ones that have passed and things like that. So I absolutely believe that there is an afterlife. Um, I'm not going to speculate as to what the specifics of that afterlife might be like. Uh, and that's not because I don't have ideas about it, but just because that's a little bit beyond the scope uh, of this question or of this episode. But yes, I do. Um, as far as the question about spirits, I absolutely believe they exist. Um, I am not the kind of person that believes spirits are like archetypes or thought forms. Like I believe the spiritual world exists completely independently of our belief in it. And I think that they are real beings with agency that can and do interact with us. 
Next question says, have you ever worked with the Goetia? And if so, was it a powerful experience? Um, Goetic workings are not a very large part of my spirituality. In fact, I've only ever done one ever, <laughs> but um, it worked for me. It was really good. It was really helpful. So um, I have seen the results of it. I got what I needed from the working that I did, but uh, the style of doing it was not really something that clicked really naturally for me. It wasn't something I really enjoyed. So it's not really something I've gone back to or felt the need to try again because there are so many other methods and paths I have to kind of get the same thing. But uh, yeah, it was helpful for me at the time, for sure. Okay, next question. What is your take on the Enochian language by John Dee? Um, okay, I want to give a caveat here that Enochian workings are not something that I've ever done personally. I have read and researched about it, partly for my own curiosity and partly because of my academic studies at one point. So um, my perspective is that he genuinely did make contact and channel something that he, you know, he said they were angels. And like, I, I don't know if they are or not, but I do think he genuinely made contact with something. But um, beyond that, I don't really know. And it's not something that I've really ever applied to my own spirituality. Okay, next question. Do you see any connection between Odin and Jupiter, both the planet and the god? Okay, that's a good question. Um, so historically, we have Roman records um, of their interactions with the Germanic people who would have been worshippers of Odin. Uh, and when they were kind of interpreting the gods of other people as being similar to their own, Odin was equated with Mercury or Hermes rather than Jupiter. So um, I think the question itself is a pretty reasonable question, right? Because Jupiter uh, has a king of the gods type of role, and we see Odin have kind of a similar role to that within his own mythology. So I think the question makes sense. Um, and I think it makes sense to see those parallels between the two of them. But um, from so if, if you associate them together, I think that's totally fine for you personally. But uh, in historic sense, no, because um, Thor was more so um, equated with Jupiter rather than Odin, who was equated with Mercury. So um, that's my answer to that question. Okay, next question. Do you know anything about experiences and being visited by angels, gods, deities, or spirits? Um, I'm not really sure what specifically you mean by that, but uh, yeah, I, I've experienced spiritual interactions uh, quite often with various different kinds of spirits, um, orishas, angels, saints, various gods, etc. Um, you know, again, I, I believe that like these things literally exist. I don't think that they're just ideas or like, thought forms that we can engage with to benefit ourselves psychologically. I think that they literally exist. Um, so yes, I, I do. I do believe in those things. Um, next question. Do you have a favorite tarot deck? Uh, I do. And this is a boring answer, but my favorite tarot deck is just a standard uh, Rider Waite Smith. There are other ones that I use occasionally, but this is the one that I definitely use the most often. 
And part of it is just because the way that I was taught tarot by my mentor is based on that standardized Rider Waite Smith tarot. Um, and because of the Kabbalistic way that I have learned to read tarot, um, the imagery of that deck specifically just makes it easier for me to know and understand what's going on. Um, so that's, that's what I prefer. That's what I use most often. I do have a couple other decks that I like to use. Um, I enjoy the Cosmic Tarot. I enjoy the Wild Unknown Tarot. Um, but I, I tend to default to the Rider Waite Smith more often than not. Okay, next question. My understanding is that the Golden Dawn created our now classic understanding of the elemental directions when casting a circle. Earth to north, air to east, fire to south, and water to west. When I look further back to medieval magic, I don't see this pattern. What do you know about this? This is a really good question. Um, as far as I can tell from you know my personal kind of spiritual pursuits and just also my academic studies, I have no reason to think that our modern elemental directional associations are older than the golden dawn. Um, they don't seem to be. And the other traditions that kind of use a similar framework seem like they inherited that from the golden dawn. So, um, as far as I can tell that is as far back as that goes, but, um, casting a magic circle in general, perhaps not the way we know it now, but just the general doing of a magic circle is very, very old and goes back to like um, ancient Mesopotamia. But yeah, the modern elemental directional pairings um, are an invention of the golden dawn, as far as I can tell. But that doesn't mean they don't work, right? Just older doesn't mean better necessarily. Okay, next question. How do you feel about people using alchemy as a spiritual tool? I've recently heard that alchemy has been completely misconstrued and should be taken only literally. Um, okay, well, for one thing, that's a good question. Uh, but also, that's that's a little silly that someone tried to tell you that you can only use alchemy for literal things because um, alchemy has always had spiritual applications. Um, the use of alchemical techniques to transform the soul or the inner world have always existed alongside the literal like turn lead to gold type of alchemy. So you can absolutely use alchemy in a spiritual sense. Um, and many people do. A very good friend of mine um, is a spiritual alchemist. And they have had a lot of success with that. Okay, next question. What is your favorite or most effective personal practice? Oh, that's a good question. That's going to be a challenging question for me to answer. Um, so for those of you that have been listening to this podcast for even just a little bit, I think you know that my my spiritual life has a lot of things going on, um, a lot of different paths. So the things that I do vary a lot. But um, as far as just making sure that my connection with my spirits and my deities is on point, um, just daily offerings are something that I really enjoy. And it's a simple way to have at least one thing you do every day. Um, so even if I'm not doing any magical workings or petitions or spells or anything, every single day I'm making offerings to all of my spirits every day. Um, and that's good. I think that's a really good thing to do. It's very fulfilling for me. Um, if I'm actually doing like a working of some kind, more often than not, what I'm going to do is just petition um, one of the gods that I'm bound to by oath, because that's the closest relationship to divinity that I have. And it's the most easily accessible way for me to do that. 
um, because we have committed to each other. I've committed to them as their initiate and their priest. They've committed to me as basically like a, almost like a parental role. So it's just easy to do something that involves that connection because it's the strongest and most immediate one for me because of the paths that I have taken and I followed. Um, aside from that, I love to um, pray the rosary. Um, that's something I do pretty much every day as well, because you already know if you've listened to my episodes about it, but I view Mary as a goddess, as the one face of the divine feminine. Um, I have a lot of closeness with her. A lot of my spirituality is very Marian. So that is something I do often and have seen great results from that as well as just closeness with her. Um, but yeah, more often than not, it's going to be offerings every day, um, petitioning specific deities that I am in commitments with and praying the rosary. If there's something that's a little bit more specific or a little bit more like serious or like drawn out, I'll do a novena prayer to whoever I feel like I need to do that to. Um, but yeah, that's, those are my go-tos usually. And then I'll do more specific things depending on the situation. Okay. Next question. Would you say that Christian prayer and practices such as fasting, confession, etc., qualify as occult practices or magic? Um, so do I think that they're magical? Yes, because I think every religion has some element of like mysticism and magic in it, even if it's not necessarily presented that way or viewed that way by like a religious institution, right? Um, I think praying the rosary is magical. I think praying novenas to saints is magical. I think um, the Catholic and more like liturgical Christianities, they have, you know, like saint relics and medals that are blessed and holy water. And I think all those things are very, very magical. But what's important here is to distinguish magic from occult. Because while those things do overlap very, very often, they do not mean the same thing. Because by its very nature, if something is occult, that means it is hidden, um, that it requires effort to find, that there's a mystery involved somehow that has to be looked into, that it's not what's immediately obvious. So mainstream religious practices, like the ones that were used in the example of this question, by definition, would not be occult because they're not hidden. But they can be and are absolutely magical. So that doesn't mean that you can't apply those things to your practice of the occult, but um, mainstream religious practices by their nature are not occult because they are exoteric rather than esoteric. Once something becomes the mainstream becomes part of an institutional religion or a mainstream religion, it's no longer a cult because it's the definition of the word doesn't allow for that, if that makes sense, but absolutely it can still be meaningful and magical and mystical. Next question. What would you say to someone who believes anything besides Christian practice can send you to hell? I would say that that type of thinking is a product of very hardline evangelical fundamentalist Christianity. And I would say even by mainstream Christian standards, that's really bad theology. Um, and beyond that, I would say no one has to do anything they don't want to do. So if there's some sort of practice or spirituality that makes you nervous, you don't have to do it if you don't want to do it. Um, but also, if the fear of hell is affecting your life to that degree, I think deconstructing some fundamentalist Christian views would be helpful for you. Um, and maybe 
if it's severe enough, maybe even speaking with mental health professional to help you address those fears and anxieties could be helpful as well, because that sounds uh, like some religious trauma, to be honest with you. Okay, we have a little bit of time left, so we're going to keep keep on going. Next question says, what is your profession and is it related to the occult? Um, I have a, a day job that is not this, right? Like, I don't make money from this podcast. It's something I just do because I enjoy doing it and because I've been fortunate enough to ha have found several people like you online that enjoy listening to what I have to say. So I'm, I'm very thankful and appreciative of that, but this is very much not my job. This is not paying for any of my bills. This is not, you know, I'm not getting anything financially from this. Um, my day job is not related to the occult. Um, I do work in the field of religious studies academically, because that's just what I've studied for a very, very long time. I have two degrees in religious studies. I'm going to start working on a third soon. So um, the topic can come up occasionally because it just it's overlapped with the topic of religion. But uh, no, my job is not related to the occult or part of the occult at all. I have a, a regular boring nine to five. Okay, next question. Have you seen any Buddhist or Hindu occult techniques making inroads into Western occult practice? Um, the short answer is no. The longer answer is still no, but here's why. So Helena Blavatsky is where we see the concept of like left-hand path or right-hand path first make its way into Western occultism. And yes, those terms do have their origins in Hinduism, but the way that they're understood within Hindu tradition is more about how certain practices relate to Vedic scripture and involves like the breaking of certain taboos to achieve spiritual insight. Um, so the way that these ideas have been applied to Western occultism and to the English speaking world in general are very much divorced from their culture of origin and are very watered down and kind of bastardized versions of Hinduism. And unfortunately, we see this a lot um, because the New Age movement in particular has really just taken things from Eastern religions in ways that are not very appropriate and don't make really any sense in the context of their cultures that they came from. So if people are talking about karma, left-hand path, right-hand path, tantra, more often than not, most English speakers, unless they've been specifically trained in those traditions by elders of the appropriate traditions, don't know what they're talking about. And these terms have become so misused and bastardized in the English language in particular, but in new age spaces in general, that most people don't even know what they mean anymore. And the way that they're applied in Western occultism has almost nothing whatsoever to do with what they actually mean and the religions they come from. So um, my perspective is that no, they haven't, but also that the way they're used is really inappropriate and should probably be stopped. Um, if you're interested in like reincarnation, there's many traditions that teach some form of reincarnation that isn't borrowing something from Hinduism and being applied incorrectly. Um, if you understand left-hand path to mean baneful or right-hand path to be 
beneficent. There's other ways of working with those concepts and understanding them that doesn't require appropriating something from Hinduism. So um, that's my take on that. Might sound a little bit harsh, but like that's my opinion that I think is pretty valid. And um, I think anytime we can avoid taking something that doesn't belong to us and making it what we want it to be is probably something that we should do if there's a better alternative to that. Okay, we're coming up close to the end of our time here. So I think we're going to call it. But um, I enjoyed answering these questions. Thank you, everyone, for sending them in. Um, I really had a good time. I hope you enjoyed this episode. And that's all I have for you right now. And I will see you next week.